This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is True Crime XS. So we're on the I-70 Strangler, and we sort of leave off in 1982 in the last episode. But we don't leave off there because things stop. We just sort of, I wanted to sort of end with what was surrounding the Voidly Baker and then move into the next episode. And I did, we had also touched on Dennis Brodsky, which ultimately I don't think his case is attached to all of this, but I was gonna I was gonna bring this up because I found it on the history section of the Indiana government website. It's a it's an interesting look. This is from an author named Jordan Ryan, and they wrote about this in October of 2019. And you and I frequently talk about we talk about marginalized communities um, quite a bit. And so while this is an Indiana history blog from the Indiana historical bureau, like in.gov website, the title is really about a marginalized community. And it says how Indies queer community challenged police harassment in the 1980s. There's a lot of tags on this. If, if you go looking for it, just Jordan Ryan, Indies Queer Community Challenge Police will get you there. It's a, it's a cool read from the perspective of someone looking back on how things have changed, but it's also a bit of a disturbing read that people could be treated this way. And I bring it up because it does, this all ties into uh, the I-70 Strangler episodes that we're doing. Um, and here, here's how it starts off. Heart racing, 31-year-old Stephen Ott escaped the aggression of his companion where he met at our place, which our place is what you were thinking about last episode, I believe. And you said that it went by... OP. OP, okay. They call um, it OPs, like... OPs, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, it's now called Greg's, apparently, according to, to this article. But Stephen Ott, he was jumping out of his car near 34th Street and Georgetown Road, and he fled to a nearby Taco Bell, and he ran towards three IPD cars that were parked in the lot, IPD being the Indianapolis Police Department. So Stephen Ott recounted that he had a frightening experience with these officers. The officers offered to call him a cab, but they refused to do anything about the assault. And one of the officers called him a homophobic slur as he was waiting for the cab. So Stephen Ott writes down the license plate of this offending officer. He just writes down his license plate number. And then he gets arrested. According to Ott, when he asks why he was being arrested, he never receives a reply. He ends up spending the night in Marion County Jail. And when he appears before a judge the next morning, 
he was told simply that he could go. There would be no hearing and there were no charges. Reportedly, the officers initially charged Ott with public intoxication, although they never filed an affidavit with the court. So basically what they did, and I know, I think that you've seen this before, they drunk tanked him. Yep. So drunk tanking someone basically means for no good reason for many years, and it's actually still practiced in a lot of places, is you don't want to charge someone, it's usually in a smaller town or a suburban police department, you don't want to charge them, but you feel like maybe they would be better off if they cooled their heels for a minute and they just stayed in a, in a holding cell overnight. Right, for their own safety, for everyone else's safety. Um, it's kind of a catch-all for any time police want to hold somebody for a little bit and bully them into realizing they can do anything. Yeah, that's so. I'm glad you said that because I was wondering if you would get there if I had to like lead us there. Like, it, it's bullying, right? Absolutely. It's. I mean, not okay. It's not bullying if they legitimately, uh, if the person's legitimately drunk and they need to sleep it off. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, the issue here is like this guy wasn't drunk. He had been assaulted. And when they were mean to him, even though they called him a cab, but they were like, uh, they were using homophobic slurs. And then the officer got, what is it called? I don't, I can't really use the word I would normally use, but uh, he he got concerned that like he was going to get in trouble for his behavior, and so they arrested him. Right? Oh, you told me he was CYA, like he was covering his ass. I was going to say, well, what I would say is that he was butt hurt. Yeah, no, that's an appropriate. That's a, That's actually a, an appropriate expression. The officer gets butt hurt that this guy wrote down his license plate number after the officer had called him a slur, and Wait. and he takes him in for that. Right, and they say he was intoxicated, and because uh, because they don't require like okay, so they get released once they're sober enough is like the premise of why this happens, right? Right. And so there isn't any paperwork. Uh, a lot of times they don't even write it up that you know they were they were holding them for public intoxication, and. Like, like I said, if it's used for that appropriate purpose, because like, you know, it would get really old if, uh, you know, and like the Andy Griffith show are the Andy Griffith show made fun of this, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I can't remember. The, I think the character's name is Otis and he's always in the drunk tank. He would like let himself in. Yeah. And like shut himself in the thing and lay down. Um, and so when, when it's, it's used for that purpose. It's a huge waste of resources to have somebody have to appear in court 15 times for public intoxication, right? Right. Especially when they're going to have to turn around and do it again, right? And so for everybody's sake, they just, you know, they, they let them cool, cool it and sober up until they're drunk again. But this that's not what happened in this case. But anytime you've got police bending rules like that, I'm not saying that, like, 
as long as it's okay, it's okay. But in this case, they had absolutely no right to hold that guy, right? They didn't assist him to begin with when he needed the police's assistance. And then, and I mean, like, by taking a report that he had been attacked. Right. And then they arrest him because they don't like him, right? They don't like the fact, they're homophobic and they don't like the fact that, he, you know, they, it's it's ridiculous. They, they're making judgments that aren't their place to make. And then they get butt hurt because they're going to get in trouble for it, right? Yeah, I, you know, they definitely would today. I don't know if they would in the 80s in Indianapolis or not. Well, I tell you what, if they didn't think they were going to get in trouble for it or if they were unsure whether or not they would get in trouble for it, they wouldn't have arrested him. Yeah, that's a really good point. They would not have done anything uh, they like would just this. Do it. Yeah, and so a lot of this has been mitigated. Like you can actually get a public intoxication charge that is simply an infraction in a lot of jurisdictions today. And another way that this would go down is, in, and this is just kind of blunt, in domestic violence situations, this used to be a way that they would handle things, and now most jurisdictions have established a cool-off period. In a lot of states, you can be held until the next district court hearing or for 48 hours in order to, like, cool off from domestic violence. So over time, like, public intoxication has become a thing that can be used legitimately, but it now requires, like, you have a a field sobriety test, you have a blood test, you have blown in a breathalyzer. Right. And so while, you know, it's portrayed in entertainment avenues as this sort of like humorous thing, right? With, I I can't remember if it was Erda, whoever it was on the Andy Griffith show. It's hilarious because the guy's just like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go sleep it off. And he like puts himself in jail. And and in that case, like it was fine. The problem is it's my, it's my opinion that all the people that that would happen to where they would legitimately just need to sleep it off and it would do them absolutely no good to go through the system, like uh, either fighting or um, being convicted of, you know, this, the nuisance charges that they would be facing. Um, that does not outweigh the harm that's caused by the state ever having anybody in custody without the paperwork to back it up. Yes. And so so that's one point here. The other point here is this guy was legitimately coming to them for assistance and they could have done their job that way. And so what do you do in that type of situation? If you're who? Stephen Ott. Uh, he – now – this is what I'll state. Stephen Ott was a louder voice. I think a lot of people, one, might never report the attack in the first place. Two, might not have been intelligent enough to write down the plate number with the intention of doing something about it. And they certainly wouldn't have kept following it up. Now, with Stephen Ott, he gets the ICLU, which is the uh, Indiana... Uh, Civil Liberties Union, and he gets them involved. And at the time that this happened, uh, gay rights were a huge deal in terms of being a new thing that 
people were beginning to get serious about activism with. Well, it was, so it was a coming of age, right? Yes. For people who were identifying themselves as being gay. And it was pissing a lot of people off, right? For, for no good reason. And so it wasn't, not, I mean, you know, in theory, all humans have the same rights. I know that that's not how it actually plays out in reality, but I believe that everybody has the same rights. There's a lot of times in history homosexuality has been the same the whole time, right? It's just the more like confident uh, it becomes, the more resistance there is. And so this was a time where it was clashing really bad, right? There was it a lot was. Of harassment happening. A lot of the harassment came from law enforcement. And the reason they did it was because they could. Correct. And uh, that's really sad because there's a lot of instances where it doesn't matter. I always wonder why it comes up in the first place, right? Like, why does who this guy's sleeping with even matter? Right. And, you know, it's, just, just so we're completely clear, we're not being political about this. We're just talking about human rights, Oh, 100%. I'm saying and that, like, when someone's been attacked. That's a person. Of, I'm sorry? That's a person. Yeah, and regardless of what the circumstances surrounding it are, you help them if you're a police officer. Yeah, that's the job. Right. It, it's actually not your job to pass any sort of judgment at all. Right. And so, so this is how this sort of ties back into the I-70 stuff. In the article, it says, Indianapolis's just like you we're talking about LGBTQ community. They were encountering and protesting numerous challenges that were posed by law enforcement in the 1980s. Police were surveilling cruising sites, meaning places that they went to meet each other. The police would be there. They would harass them at places that were considered to be safe spaces. And there was the possibility of prejudiced police work as homicide rates increased for gay men. Now, bars were popular safe spaces at the time. They were environments where they were known as, we'll just say gay bars, but they were known to be places in the community where members of these like-minded groups could socialize. But they also end up becoming the site of a lot of harassment, surveillance, and violence. Mike Stotler was a gay rights activist in Indianapolis at the time, and he recounts police harassment at Terre Haute's gay bar, our place. He would he said, you can be in the bar for maybe an hour and be asked to present ID to a police officer for four or five times. The police would also routinely copy down license plate numbers in an attempt to intimidate the bar's patrons. Stotler also described violent harassment, stating that one man en route to our place like R-place, which is different than OP, alleged that two police officers picked him up, drove him away from the bar, they beat him, and they verbally assaulted him. And despite broken ribs and a hospital stay, the victim was afraid to report the crime for fear of losing his job and being forced to come out to his family. So mistrust of police following these types of encounters would stymie efforts to solve a string of murders that track back to 1980 or possibly earlier 
a lot of this is not reported in the news. You're not going to find it on Wikipedia or you won't be able to figure out what's connected because at the time, one way to discount a victim, and you and I've talked about this in detail over hundreds of episodes, is you could call them a sex worker and all the names that come with that. But another way that that could be done is to associate the victims as having identified with something in the LGBTQ community that would kind of automatically discount them. And the way that the news media reported it at the time, it made you feel like there was something wrong. And if you look at it now, it's terrible reporting. But if you look at it, you can tell that like the, the writers and the editors and the people that control the powers of the media back then clearly think less of these particular victims. And the next thing that the author that she brings up here is there were, uh, there, there was 15 year old Michael Petrie who was murdered in 1980 and left in a ditch in Hamilton County. Then it was 25 year old Gary Davis who was murdered in 1981 on the South side of Indianapolis the following year, 26-year-old Dennis Brodsky was murdered on the north side of Indianapolis. And then the fifth one she brings up is Devoy Baker. And then she this is how he gets portrayed. This quote comes from his portrayal in the media. The body of Devoy Baker, an eighth grader who was last seen in an area of monument circle known for prostitution, was found in a ditch in Fishers. With his death, police, up, police ramped up efforts to find the perpetrator. Police Chief Joseph G. Uh, Macti stated, I believe as a police chief, when a 14-year-old boy gets picked up downtown and murdered and young teenagers are getting mur- money for prostitution on the circle, we have an obligation not to let this happen to our young people. So his sentiment's right. Still throwing that in there about the prostitution. Right. Anybody under 18 is not a prostitute. Yeah, I know. I'm with you on that. And like, Especially I, I, if they've died. Correct. Uh, uh, children cannot be prostitutes. They are victims of child abuse. I cannot say that enough. Yeah. I actually uh, get quite aggravated because, of course, you know, everybody will notice that if they've heard us talk about it, right? All of a sudden these narratives that are spun that you just listen to and hear all the time, all of a sudden you're going to start noticing how, you know, they refer to 15 year olds as prostitutes and you're going to realize, well, they can't possibly be a prostitute. They're a victim of child abuse. Correct. And that's why I say it. (laughs) And I say it every time. Um, It is, uh, this is a, this is sort of a, a, it's a lot of cases kind of kind of jumbled together, wouldn't you say? Yeah, so this is a mess. This whole thing that we're covering with the I-70 Strangler is leading somewhere, but like it's a mess. And like it, if we're if we're real honest about it, I think what you'll discover by the end of this series of episodes is we don't know what the hell happened here. That's true. Um, I would say that um, this presents a situation where uh, just about any of uh, the guys, uh, when you're in a situation where you're hiding your 
are your, I don't know that they're hiding their identity, but like it's real, they feel like it's nobody's business. And then, you know, somebody is connecting with them on some level and then they're uh, getting them into a position where they can in turn attack them or kill them. Right. Yeah. And so, yes. Okay. I think it's this. I think when you're trying to be an upstanding member of the community and you have a job and the community looks down on you, if you were to be open about this particular aspect of your life, you hide it. But at the same time, that becomes a very lonely thing. And if you want someone to have a connection with you, and that can be as simple as having a close confidant that you can tell your whole life to, or an intimate partner, or like a long-term relationship, all of those things and everything along that spectrum, like it can be very difficult to meet each other. So that's actually how you develop this area that's known for cruising and prostitution is you've you made it yourself. The police did. And even all the way up to 1998, there's articles in the Indianapolis News, and one of them is quoted here. It's a pretty good quote. And that is, it's from Wally Painter. And he was the president of the LGBT, LGBTQ civil rights organization, Justice Inc. He says the police put this on the back burner and they didn't discuss it across jurisdictional lines. If this had been CEOs' bodies scattered across the community, there would have been a manhunt, the likes of which you had never seen. And out and about Indiana author Bruce Siebert, he had a different take, and he told the Indianapolis News that he believed some police officers honestly didn't know how to plug into the gay community for help, but that they learned along the way and established longer-term contacts because of the investigation. Regardless of the extent of their efforts, police found Questioning possible witnesses extremely difficult due to LGBTQ mistrust of the police. This led the police to a new strategy, which is when they began surveilling cruising sites. They undertook this in the hopes of deterring similar crimes and catching the perpetrator, but also to cut down prostitution, assaults, and harassment of tours, tourists. So like, my point is, all those things are true. They can't get good witnesses because they're not taking these cases seriously because they're happening in places that essentially the community has created by ostracizing these people. You're right. And I mean, there's no winning there, right? Yeah, there's no way to win that. So, Well, now there's a forensic DNA technology where they just do genetic genealogy and they don't even have to interact, right? Yeah, I mean, we're getting there. We're really getting to the point where the, the interaction is, is, is far less needed. But it was definitely needed at this period of time. You know what's so interesting is, and I don't know what happened, really. All we have is, like, what we can go off of now, like, 40 years later, right? And uh, what's interesting is what you just uh, said from that blip in the article in the quote, basically... The patrons of the club were feeling like they were being harassed by the police. The police seemed to be saying, well, we were checking everybody out to figure out what was going on. Yeah. Okay. But like, it's the same thing happening. Yeah. And okay. So in the middle of all this, because we're still on the I-70 Strangler cases, by the way. I know I'm detouring here, but I'm pointing out that, like, this investigation, 
I don't know that it would have been better or more well done if it weren't young gay men. But I do know that that hindered things. I think that there's more to that there than just the fact that they're gay. I, yeah, it is. What else? Like, what were, what are some of your thoughts on like why there's more to what's going on here? Well, there was a uh, there was a statement made that if this was a bunch of CEOs that were uh, being killed, there would be a task force manhunt happening. Yeah. Except that without the element of whatever it is that's causing the vulnerability, a bunch of male CEOs aren't going to be in this position. And it becomes a thing where it seems prejudicial because of like what is making them vulnerable all of a sudden. But like, there's just not a whole lot of cases in history where there's a bunch of CEOs being found dead along the side of the road. Right. Right. And so it becomes something that is hard to deal with because of this, uh, this anomaly sort of, right? Because they're going, well, we've got all these guys that are being killed. And so I think that anytime, and I mean that for like this particular area, it's not that it's like never happened before. It's just when you've got something like this occurring and you don't know how to approach it, Right, which is what it sounds like to me was really happening more. I mean, I feel like the examples uh, of like the guy being put in the drunk tape as like a bullying measure, um, like that's not the same thing. But I feel like a lot of this is just like police trying to act but not knowing what to do. And then the gay community being very super um, aware that they were being watched and to feel like they were being harassed. And so there was a lot of miscommunication, right? But I do think that the invulnerability that that brings, it, it boggles like normal criminal investigation procedure, right? Yes. In a way that like they just really couldn't get themselves around in the 80s. Well, so that's a good point. And I grabbed an Indianapolis Star article from Thursday, June 9th, 1983 from a guy named Thomas Layden. Because where we left off is kind of 1982. And we were were sort of looking at like how this, this sprawling set of murders was happening in this community. And I pulled this up because I wanted to sort of give some perspective of what law enforcement thought at the time. Now, this comes from Thomas Layden is writing it, but with Scott Miley, Deborah Pines, uh, David Ramondi, and George Stuteville, they're all preparing different reports about this because it's so sprawling. Um, it's a very small article. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read like the, 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 the bones of it. But it's, it, this is what happens when the eighth victim is found. And the title of this article is Michael A. Riley Buried. And it says, as the latest victim of eight unsolved deaths is buried on Wednesdays, officials have learned he had been strangled. Michael Andrew Riley, 22, 
was dead before his body was thrown from a bridge into a rural drainage ditch southeast of Greenfield. That's according to Charles Glidewell, the deputy Hancock County coroner at the time. Authorities were able to determine Wednesday that the Southside residents who sometimes visited gay bars had been dead from four days to a week before his body was found. Uh, Glidewell also said that something unknown was taken and wrapped around his neck until he died. Tests indicated that Riley, who was the operator of a vending machine route, was drunk when he was murdered. And then Glidewell declined to say if Riley had been molested. The murder investigation continued, even at Riley's funeral, where detectives secretly videotaped the mourners in case the killer was among them. Riley was last seen May 28th at a Broad Ripple nightclub with an unidentified man. He's the latest of eight young men to die and have their bodies left in isolated areas scattered widely around Indianapolis. Seven of the victims were Indianapolis residents, and most of the victims may have had some link with the city's gay community, according to police Riley was the second to be strangled. Three others were stabbed. The cause of death for three other men is not known, but police are also treating those cases as homicides. Because some victims were strangled and others stabbed, investigators are speculating that more than one killer is responsible. The unsolved series of deaths since 1980 has led to comparisons with the murders that shocked Atlanta, Georgia, 28 in total for two years, Wayne Williams was convicted in two of those killings in 1982. But based on the early evidence, there's no parallel with the Atlanta child slaying, said Robert L. Ward, Deputy Chief of Investigations for the Indianapolis Police Department. We are satisfied we do not have Atlanta-like slayings here. What it appears to be right now are at least two sets of murders that may be linked and some other unsolved deaths. And then chiming in is Hancock County Sheriff Nicholas Gulling, and he said he was optimistic that Riley's murder would be solved. Police continued to receive names of possible suspects from persons who viewed a sketch of the man Riley was seen with. Gulling said, I feel positive about the investigation of this murder. He was also encouraged from the 10 or so police agencies involved uh, who were going to form a task force to investigate all the murders. It is expected that at least one detective from each department will join the team. Okay, this is in 1983. Technically, today, these murders have been sorted and separated, and they remain unsolved. Technically. There's an idea of who might be behind all of this, but we're not there yet. So what do you think of that commentary from those two guys? It feels like CYA, right? They're saying there's going to be a task force and everybody's going to come together and they're going to figure all this out. I mean, I feel like that they were sort of cornered into talking about something that they didn't really have anything to say about. That's the feeling that I got as well from all of this. And what's interesting is, for all intents and purposes... The murders kind of stop. We don't know exactly why they stopped yet, but the next body that we have in this pile is a kid. He's 17 years old. His name is Eric Rocker. Uh, He vanishes on May 7th, 1985. So almost two years after Michael Riley 
vanishes either from Michael vanishes from either the Vogue theater or from broad ripple, depending on which story you've read and believe Um, they're all pretty credible. I think it just could be people saw him on different nights, but then it's two years that, you know, they say that they're forming this task force and things die off, but then Eric Rotker, he vanishes on May 7th, 1985. And according to his parents, he was attending interviews for a summer job on the day of his disappearance, but he didn't show up for any of them. And all of his friends and family members said that he was not gay. But later research indicated that Rocker did have friends and acquaintances who were at different levels of uh, dabbling in drugs or potentially selling drugs. Witnesses claimed that he had, they had seen Eric at a bus stop in the early morning of March the 7th. And I think if you look at different accounts of that, I think they mean May the 7th. Um, But instead of waiting for that bus that day, he accepted a ride from a passing car. Uh, When found, he had an apparent burn mark on his left shoulder and he had been strangled with a rope. So Eric gets found a few days after May the 7th, 1985, uh, with his, he's found shirtless near a stream, uh, but this time he's found in Preble County, Ohio, and that's weird to me that this guy's been just dumping in Hancock County. But maybe he did want to change up what he was doing. Do you know what I mean? Maybe, or maybe it's not the same guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I feel like this is a situation where it could possibly be the same person, right? Um, But I also feel like the circumstances that add up to this could repeat themselves uh, in a bunch of one-offs. Now, the timing is suspect, right? Yeah, it's definitely suspect. Um, But I feel like, you know, in the event that... Um, they're going to be murdered and found like this. Uh, it could be sort of a, it's going to be the same type of person, even if it's not the same person. Kind of agree with you there. I, I, I think there's more, like, I think we've discovered with investigative genetic genealogy that there's a lot of one-offs and two-offs that weren't, you know, serial murders of six to 10 people. Uh, That's true. Um, And see, in this particular case, and I can't really get a great handle on it, and this may sound sort of being uh, biased, and I'm not trying to be. I'm just trying to give an example. But if you've suddenly got um, at least one and possibly several uh, gay bars open, right? Right. Right. And uh, they have the opportunity to socialize confidentially. I doubt it was, you know, anonymously or whatever. But, you know, they had this opportunity that presented itself. I don't know, like, how, like, common that was, right? But so opening that opportunity up, it could uh, put together a set of circumstances that was, like, just right for you know, more than one person to do something that they then regretted and then got mad about or upset about and took it out on the person, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. And like, and, and all the things that we're talking, I mean, okay. Just imagine there's a police officer in this mix that is having latent tendencies who is angry and s- sitting around all the time, having to surveil these locations, but not able to be himself. That's something that could happen. And then, and, and that's an extreme. I'm saying it from the perspective of like, that's how you end up with, with all of this potentially not being related at all. So we call this guy the I-70 Strangler. And I want to ask you this. Have you found any good reason for them to call this guy the I-70 Strangler and and shown where like something links all these bodies? Because the early ones, up until this moment right now with Eric Rutger, like I-70 doesn't really come into the mix. It doesn't. Uh, I haven't. I have a really hard time with the correlation here. I, I don't know. I don't know what has happened, but I, I don't find any reason why. I mean, I guess they could say like it would be the I-70 victims in 1980s. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know why they would say that, but I I can't figure out. And so either I'm missing something or this has just been like lumped together and with, with a, a name like you know, tossed on it. You're not missing public information. And this is what I'll say. They could have fingerprints or DNA that are tying all of this together, but really what they're basing most of this on is sort of a victim profile and sort of a, a, a manner of death cause and manner of death, meaning they're strangled. I would say that the strangulations and the stabbings are definitely going to lead different directions. I think so too. Ultimately, there still could be some crossover there, the way that this has been investigated. It's a, okay. It's both a poor investigation from the perspective of cooperating between jurisdictions, but it's also a really shitty outcome here in that these people are are all lumped together in death and then lumped together with suspects like there's like there's aspects of this um and i'm i'm what i'm gonna do next is i'm gonna rattle off the rest of the quote i-70 victims i am not trying to denigrate those victims i just need to get them in here so that you guys can see some of the the differences here because what we're really getting to is was there even an I-70 strangler at all? And if so, was it just one? And is what is put out in mainstream media today, does it make any damn sense? And unfortunately, I don't think that a lot of people that cover this stuff are going to like my answers in, in the direction I'm headed here. All right. So I've got seven more victims that are attributed to I-70 Strangler. And again, I am not discounting these victims at all. I'm just putting them under the I-70 Strangler in as succinct a way as possible so we can talk about that. Well, My- let me ask you this. Do you think it's po- is it the pre is it the initial victims location and then how you get to Preble County, Ohio? Yeah, I think that's what they do. I I, like you've got to go on I-70 to get there? Is that what's happening with that name? I, I think that's how they get there. They're like, oh, well, why did he stop killing in Indiana? Well, probably because he wasn't the same killer. But, you know, let's not 
<laughs> Let's not quibble. <laughs> it's probably because they're dealing with – my guess is Devoidly Baker is its own person that they know. I think the first two might be the same guy, meaning Michael Petrie and Maurice Taylor could potentially be killed by the same person. I don't think Michael Andrew Riley is even remotely affiliated with this. I'm not sure how Eric uh, Rucker gets in this mix. At all. Right. So next up we have, like, there's ties to Indianapolis, but where we're starting to find the bodies, sort of, the, like, it, it, it really defies of common sense to do what they're doing. So next up we have Michael Allen Glenn. He's 29. He's found in August of 1986, so it's a full, it's more than a year later. He lived separately from his parents. He was actually living in a trailer park outside of Indianapolis, and he was working as a handyman. They never figure out the exact date of his disappearance, but they they do note that he has strangulation marks, and they believe they might be from a rope. His body is found in August of 1986 in a ditch near Eaton, Ohio. And he gets identified three years after his discovery with the help of fingerprinting. So basically goes until 1989, not even being identified at all. But he's significantly different in age than some of these other guys. He's 29. Now, in October of 1987, James Robbins, who's 21 years old, he goes missing. It's thought to be around 10 p.m. on October the 15th. He's leaving his mother's home in Indianapolis, and he walks to the southern part of the city. Two days later, his naked corpse bearing strangulation marks is found in a ditch in rural Shelby County near I-70 south of Gwynville. Now, he has some of the best information of these victims so far, other than the first guys, and that is the police locate two witnesses but they give conflicting information. One says they saw a Jeep Wrangler Renegade near the crime scene, which is a little two-door YJ Jeep. And another one said that they saw a Chevrolet Blazer, which at the time they didn't look anything alike. These are very different vehicles. So he gets lumped into this, and he's the first victim that you can kind of look at and go, okay, well, I-70 Strangler killing him. That sort of makes sense. Jean-Paul Talbot, he was found in Defiance County, Ohio, in May of 1989. There's not a lot released about Jean-Paul out there, but we know that he was con- he was considered to have been strangled to death. Uh, then we have Stephen L. Elliott. His corpse shows up, again, in rural Preble County, Ohio. This is in August of 1989, and he is near I-70, and he is only in his underwear. He had been strangled with what was believed to have been a, a rope or a cord. And his dad told police that his son had come out in 1979, but he left the family and he became involved in prostitution. And they believed he might have developed an alcohol addiction. I don't know if they're like kind of low key on us on that. And he actually was into more things. That's just what's put out there about him. Then we have one of the weirder victims that come out of this. Clay Russell Boatman, he disappears in August of 1990, and he's leaving his apartment in Richmond, Indiana, to go over to 
OP, to our place. His body is discovered by a group of children in Eaton, Ohio. He's 32 years old, and he's a licensed practical nurse. Now, he is determined to have potentially died of strangulation. He definitely has signs indicating he was strangled to some level. But then when the families are interviewed about his lifestyle, everybody says they didn't know he was gay. They think he like that was not possible. But he's old, the oldest one. He's a licensed practical nurse. My point in, in kind of singling him out is I personally cannot imagine how they lump him in in terms of like prostitution which they do with a lot of other people in this list. I don't know that, um, I, I don't think that they were saying prostitution there. No, they're not saying it, but I'm saying frequently, like, okay, when you have nine high-risk victims, how does number 10 be this guy and you just link him because of the locations? Is it the fact that he disappears from Richmond, Indiana, when he was on his way to our place and then shows up in Eaton, Ohio. That's the link that they're going with. Yeah. Because he was a missing guy. I don't know who said he was going to our place. I don't know if he made it to our place. Um, but if that was somehow like credibly, you know, a fact, I think his family's probably just, you know, in denial, uh, because our place, uh, was a gay bar. Right. Yes. Okay. And uh, so I feel like at this, during this time in this area, any man who went missing and had an association with uh, being gay or being a prostitute, and I I don't lump those two things together. uh, It just seems like that's the case happening here, right? Yeah. They get put on the list and it doesn't even seem like it takes that much to connect them. Yeah, so weirdly, rural Ohio chimes in here, and I I hate to say something like this, but in some ways, Russell Boatman dying is one of the best things for this case. So, okay, there's a second one, and then I'm going to tell you why. Thomas Clevenger Jr., he's 19. He vanishes around the same time that Russell Boatman goes missing in August of 1990. His semi-nude corpse is later found at uh, this abandoned railroad track out in Greenville, Ohio. He had grown up poor uh, in a neighborhood in Indianapolis, and he had began committing crimes from an early age, and he was drinking at an early age. And he was uh, very well known to police because at the age of 14, he had attacked and stabbed the deputy headmaster at his school. He had been diagnosed as being having some kind of intellectual disability that caused problems for reading and writing for him. And shortly before his death, he was thought to be engaging in prostitution near these gay bars to earn money, which is a fact that his mother and sister said is a lie. I don't know how accurate that is. I'm just saying that pops up in several places here. But what happens when these two guys go missing and pop up in Ohio is the detectives in Preble and Dark Counties, which are the affected counties, they take this collection of murder investigations and they send it to the FBI. Uh, Larry Swihart is quoted in 
the Palladium, uh, in, which is a Richmond, Indiana newspaper, Wednesday, October 31st of 1990. And this is how he goes. He says, mine's all ready to go at Preble and darks should be, they should get here this afternoon and it should all leave here tomorrow. So Larry Swihart had been investigating the deaths of four young men found strangled and dumped in Preble County ditches since May of 1985. All were believed to have connections with the Indianapolis gay community. Although they have refused to term the deaths the work of a serial killer, police believe those four deaths are connected with seven others where bodies were found under similar circumstances in Indiana and Ohio since June of 1980. The most recent body was that of Thomas R. Clevenger Jr. of Indianapolis, who had been found dumped on an abandoned railroad bed near Greenville in Dark County. And Dark County Detective Roger Schellerberger said that uh, Clevenger was last seen alive on Indianapolis's east side, where many of these victims were last reported as having been seen. But he said that detectives have not connected Clevenger with the gay community. We have leads and things, but nothing really spectacular that knocked us in the head, said the detective. Nothing that really makes me feel good about the case. He said that even after the case reports are given to the FBI, he and other detectives will continue to investigate in Indianapolis. We're going to be going over there again soon to keep talking to his friends and try and get leads. The string of murders began receiving more attention after the bodies of Clevenger and former Richmond resident Clay Russell Boatman were found within a month of each other. Boatman was found on August the 14th by children playing in Sugar Run Creek, southwest of Eaton. The media attention has brought out quite a few leads from people that feel we need to know a name and someone to look into, Swihart said. He said some of the victims were street hustlers, men who were selling sex for money. Swihart said that's survival to them. I hate to use the word, quote, gay community, because you can be a hustler even if you're not gay. Some of the hustlers were gay and street hustlers. Some of them were straight and street hustlers. Swihart said the FBI will try to develop a psychological profile of the murderer based upon the similarities in all of these cases. And that's kind of a place where we're going to start wrapping up today. I will say this. If you go read the Wikipedia about this, you you can read a lot of BS about this whole thing. There's one more victim that falls in here. He is listed on the on the I-70 Stranglers wiki. Uh, that's uh, Otto Gary Becker, but he's 42 years old. His body is found on October 7th of 1991 in a, a gravel road out in Henry County, Indiana. While investigating his murder... Police found several witnesses who claimed to have seen Becker in a car with two other men earlier that day who that had been driving north on I-70 near Indianapolis. According to them, one of the men was holding Becker down while the other was driving. The witnesses were taken to the police station and shown photographs of various criminals convicted of kidnapping and murder charges in the state, but none of them were matched to these alleged abductors. If you just read the cliff notes, they say a task force of eight officers was created by Indianapolis police in 1982 to investigate these crimes. Following the discovery of Riley's body back in June of 1983, 
Four more men were included in the, in the list of potential victims. So that's 25-year-old Gary Davis, 27-year-old Dennis Brotsky, 21-year-old John Roach, and 22-year-old Daniel McNeve. Like the other victims, these, these were all young gay men who visited gay bars and were killed in Indianapolis between August 1981 and May of 1983. In 1983, the FBI joined the task force with profilers suggesting that the offenders showed volatile behavior when committing the murders. Near the end, it was determined that there were at least two different perpetrators operating independently of one another, and because of this, they pull Davis, Brodsky, Roach, and McNeve off this list. According to the FBI, Davis, Brodsky, Roach, and McNeve's killer was a white man between the ages of 20 and 30, working in jobs that required low skill or labor, He was a fan of military paraphernalia, and he led a healthy lifestyle. In his everyday life, he expressed homophobic views, but was secretly a latent homosexual who committed the murders out of shame or self-hatred. The other victims, according to investigators, were killed by a white man about 45 years of age, thought to be overweight, with a high-paying job, who was well-respected in his community. They also concluded that the killer may be married, but has no intimate relationship with his wife, likely because of the attraction to adolescent boys and young men. He feels shame and guilt, and in addition to possibly destroying his career or reputation, it will result in deep hatred and subsequent murder. That's a mouthful. What do you think about all that? Well, it's interesting. I <laughs> I got confused for a second because I'm like, wait a second, who are all these guys? And they're not on the list because they were taken off, right? We talked about them last week. Um, I, I moved them off the list last week for us, but now I'm getting to the point that I'm sort of timelining it and saying that these, quote, task force, end quote, like doesn't include them after 1983. Well, I have... Um I mean, at least they're not just like leaving them all grouped together. But I, when I just do the very bare like outline on each one of the cases, um, I see really different things happening in like each of them, even though there are these like uh, characteristics. Um, I do think that Otto uh, Gary Becker. I feel like he could probably just come off that list. That to me, it's kind of weird that they've even got him on there. I, I like I said, like I don't agree with this setup in a number of ways. But I wanted to see, you know, I wanted to see it through. Just kind of talking about the cliff notes of the I seventy killer. It's out there like that, right? I mean, so I. To me, this is not how I would organize this information. Um, I feel like it could be like a huge part of why like you've still got all these open cases, right? Because I think that, you know, anytime you're looking at a group, even if you split the group in half, you're going to miss a bunch of stuff, right? Yeah, you are. And so I, I think we leave off here today and we go with that idea because... Next week, we're going to talk about how the suspects were like lined up here and looked at. And we're going to talk about the conclusion of this case, which weirdly, while it's the conclusion of the I-70 Strangler case next week, it is not the conclusion of the series because it just gets weirder. 
Oh, yeah. And it it's the conclusion in that, like, we're going to have covered what we have to cover at the moment. It's not the conclusion like it's solved. No. No, this is... <laughs> not, yeah, the weird thing about all of this, and I, I'll just go ahead and spoil the ending for everybody. None of this is solved, and none of this makes any sense. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. This is True Crime XS. All right, so I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CRIMEXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance, but plain water can be boring and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated it helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. And right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E. 
excess. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes and true crime excess will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all natural real food ingredients All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all natural whole food ingredients, and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together, and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so... I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be X. Yes. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations. If you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making. But Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach, I use as a secondary flavor and lemon lime, I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. 
Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation, too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS, and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS, and it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras, and now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support true crime excess. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to 
neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash true crime excess. You can also use the code true crime excess at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code true crime excess. <laughs> 